All right, you can take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 7, if you would, please. Give you a moment to find that, Matthew 7. And we're going to read verses 1 down to 5 today. I'm going to be preaching a sermon to you called Gunk in Your Eye, as you've seen in the description, I'm sure. I hope that, um, as I type that in, I hope it didn't like spell check it and correct it. The, the first time I tried to type it in, gunk in your eye, it changed it to funk in your eye. And uh, yeah, don't want that. But today we're preaching on gunk in your eye. And if you would, get Matthew 7. And you can hold that in your left hand and your right hand. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 2, we're going to get a verse from there as well as we get into the sermon. And we're continuing this series that we started several weeks ago now on the Sermon on the Mount. This is another crucial portion of that sermon that Jesus gave us. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse number 1, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Now, a mote, just so that you understand, it's another way of saying the smallest particle of a thing, anything. At the time of, in the biblical times, and of course they didn't have microscopes and they couldn't see down to the atomic level and so forth, but a mote, that's just the smallest speck of something. In verse 4, how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Now notice the crowd that Jesus is addressing in verse 5. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And with that, if you would, bow your heads with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for His help and His blessing this morning. Father, as we approach the throne this morning, we do so in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we thank You for this privilege to be able to talk to You, to be able to hear from You. Father, my desire this morning, uh, Lord, is just to be a vessel. I realize that I'm not sufficient of myself to think anything as of myself. My sufficiency comes from You. Please fill me this morning. Please give me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in due season, God. I pray You might educate us today on this very important subject. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Amen. Now every part of the Sermon on the Mount, it makes a monumental difference in our lives. And as you've seen, if you've been following along, uh, Jesus covered a lot of different areas, right? I, I, I hesitate to say every single part of life, every circumstance of life, you can find uh, specific reference to it in the Sermon on the Mount. But I will say that if you applied everything you learned in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it would not only renovate your life, it would bring it in line with, with what Jesus expects. And part of life, whether you like it or not, is judgment. It is knowing how and why we should judge 
things. We should judge circumstances. We should judge people. Now, I realize that that is not a very popular thing to say. Uh, there are even a lot of preachers that will put great emphasis on the very first part of verse 1, judge not, and then they kind of trail off. They, they don't finish the verse. The idea that is if you're judging, you're disobeying Jesus. We have to remember there's more to the verse and there's more to the passage than just those first two words. We have to work our way beyond that. Bear in mind that when God made us, He made us with an innate ability to discern between right and wrong. That was, that was part of us when He created us in His image. Now, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, their idea of right and wrong was based on what God said. And then after they decided to eat that fruit, that forbidden fruit, they took that responsibility upon themselves but they were using that God-given moral compass that, that, that had been programmed into their hearts. Uh, if you would, look at Romans 2 and verse number 15. God, I want to show you here how God, when He created us like this and gave us a conscience, right? The conscience is that moral capacity that we have. Uh, God built into society a, an accountability system. It's a way in which society can keep itself in line. Now, right, first prize, gold medal, is that we just do what God said. That's how God originally set it up. But after sin entered into the world, then this age of conscience, this, the use of the conscience is now something that we can't ignore. It's a part of life. And therefore, to say, judge not, skip over the subject, just avoid it, it that can be very detrimental. We need to know what God said about this subject. Romans 2 verse 15, Paul says this, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Now he's talking about Gentiles, people that had never seen the Bible. They still have access to right and wrong. They know the difference because of what God did in their heart, how He built their heart. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts. The meanwhile, now look at this part, accusing or else excusing one another. You see how God, He built it into the heart so that we can look at a person or a situation and, and come to a conclusion and say this is right or this is wrong. We can make a formal accusation, say that it was bad, or we can, we can affirm the behavior. We can excuse what they're doing and say, yep, you have a good reason to do what you're doing. Society was built, right, to have this accountability. Now, what happens? What happens when the way we view the world gets skewed or distorted? What happens when the lens through which we should examine things gets out of focus? If I can say it this way to use the title of my sermon, what happens when we get gunk in our eyes? then this entire system of, of, of accountability, of being able to help each other stay in line with what's right and avoid what's wrong, all of that begins to deteriorate. Uh, if you would, come back to Matthew chapter 7. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we have to make it past the first two words of, of the passage. Jesus did say, judge not, but then there's more to the subject. He is going to give us some proper instructions for how to judge, even in this passage, 
by the time you get to verse 5, if you would just let your eyes uh, wander down to the end of verse 5, it says, Then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. By the end of this passage, Jesus goes from judge not to here's how you properly judge so that you can help your brother with his eye problems, to get that little bit of gunk out of his eye. Uh, let me remind you of something Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus said, Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, in that verse, he, he commands people to judge, but judge righteous judgment. It needs to be done, it, but it needs to be done in the proper way. In Matthew 7, these first five verses are going to help us, I believe, tremendously to get that right. Now, there's three things I want to talk to you about from this passage. First of all, verses 1 and 2, when it comes to properly judging any situation or any person, there needs to be a balance. There needs to be a balance. If you look at in verse 1 and 2 again, Judge not that you be not judged. But look at the first word of verse 2. For. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Why do I need to be careful about outright condemning things and people? Because. Verse 2 says because. For. You need to be cautious about, about being judgmental because the standard you use to judge other people that same standard is going to be applied to you. So before you just rush out and rush to judgment, stop and think and make sure, am I approaching this with the proper balance? Now, the balance I want to suggest or, or tell you that you need to have, not just suggest, I believe this is a biblical truth. You need to have the proper balance between mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. Now, I believe that these two, they, you can think of them not, not necessarily as polar opposites, but they do stand uh, one over against the other. And some people, when they get a little side-heavy one way or the other, they, they might have all mercy and no truth. Or they could be the other way, all truth and no mercy. Let, let's deal with that second one uh, just briefly. When you find somebody that's all truth, no mercy, they have a proper standard. They have an upright standard. They might even know their Bible. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of Bible-believing Christians. They get a bit hot-headed, and this is where we get the term Bible-thumping. They believe that it is their calling within the body of Christ to just run around hitting people over the head of the Bible saying, you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're wrong. That They might be correct. They might actually be able to present a verse that shows that that other person is wrong, but there's no mercy. There's no compassion. There's no concern for the person that is receiving that criticism. Uh, hold your place here. Can I, can I show you a verse in James chapter 2? I'd like to show you James chapter 2, verse number 13. James 2, verse 13. Now, as you find that, let me just further state about this, this first group we're dealing with. All truth, no mercy. There's a lack of balance. They sometimes uh, support that attitude with another Bible verse. 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 15 says, The spiritual man judges all things. 
And as they go around with their judgmental, overly critical attitude, I mean, not one stone is left upon another. They can tear down anybody's life all the way to the ground. They believe that they are doing the right thing because the Bible says the spiritual man judges all things. So they have to tear everything to pieces. If you'll look carefully at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul refers to the spiritual man judging all things, if you look at the verse just before it, it lends a lot of, a lot of insight. The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. But the spiritual man, he can judge all things. What Paul's getting at is, is not that a Bible-believing Christian should have a, a judgmental, overly critical attitude about everything. We as saved people have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have the mind of Christ. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. So therefore, we are able to judge things of, the, of a physical, carnal, earthly, worldly nature. We're part of that, part of that realm. But we can also judge things of a spiritual nature. So in that sense, we can judge all things, not just natural things, but also spiritual things, because the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ, dwells within us. A lost person, someone who's never been born again, has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, they really have no place to comment about what it's like to walk with God. They have no opinion to offer that's really uh, valid because they've never experienced it. It'd be the same as somebody saying, I hate coffee. Oh, when's the last time you had it? I've never had coffee. Well, then you can't say you hate it if you've never tried it. But you and I as saved people, we can judge the matter. We can look at spiritual things and say, yes, because this Holy Spirit dwells within me, I'm able to speak intelligently about spiritual matters. Now, obviously, we have to use spiritual standards, uh, the Scripture and so forth. But uh, for in James chapter 2, in verse number 13, James writes it like this. He says, For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy. Do you see how what James is writing, it works perfectly with the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. So he's warning us about receiving a harsh condemnation. If you're overly critical and you're a judgmental person and there's no balance, there's no mercy, then people and the Lord are going to be a little tougher on you. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now some people would read it and understand it like this. Mercy erases judgment. Mercy doesn't eliminate judgment. Judgment is still there. Judgment is you take the truth, the standard, and you apply the situation or the person, you, you measure them up to that standard, and then you can make a proper judgment. You say, listen, you, you didn't live up to the standard. You missed the mark. The mark is still there. The standard's there. But then mercy, if you have the proper balance, you can say, listen, I, I know you messed up, but I still care about you. And I'm concerned about helping you make that right. And then mercy rejoices against judgment. It doesn't eliminate it, but
but it rather helps you put that judgment to good use. You have to have balance. Come back to Matthew 7. Now, the other extreme that people would go to, some say all truth, no mercy. Others, it's all mercy and no truth. There's no standard at all. They look at verse 2 and they say, well, Jesus said, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Well, in order to avoid any sort of condemnation, then I will never condemn anyone. I will never judge anyone. And in so doing, they are eliminating a standard. They're eliminating anything of value. They can no longer say that they have the right position because they said that there's no standard. They're not going to offer any judgment. Isn't it a strange irony? A person with, a person with all mercy and no standard, no truth, they will say, this is the right way to do it. Everybody's right. Everybody's okay. Everybody's great. Everything that everyone does, it's fine. I'm not going to say that anyone's wrong. And then when I say, ooh, I don't agree with you, they go, hey, you're wrong. You shouldn't judge. But now, now you just judged me. The, this person, whether they realize it or not, if they were to think this through to the very end, they're actually removing all value from life. There no longer becomes a mark towards which we should strive, right? Paul said we press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But if there's no standards, if there's no truth, then how do we know that we're doing right instead of wrong? You have to have some sort of a measure. You just need to make sure you have the right one. You take away the standards and all of a sudden you find yourself repeating the phrase that Solomon repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vain, vanity, vexation of spirit. Right? That's, that's, he said life under the sun. If you just look at life under the sun without considering uh, eternity, then sometimes life doesn't look fair because bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, and it looks as if there's no standard many, in many cases. And if that's the approach you have to life, man, life loses meaning and it becomes frustrating. We must have a good balance. Now that's the first part to getting the subject of judging correct. But... The passage doesn't end there. It, it's fine if you have a good balance and you understand mercy and truth. Both of them need to be there. Good. However, verse 3, Jesus said, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? So maybe you got verse 1 and 2 correct. The balance is there. You have the proper measure. You have mercy. But maybe you have a beam in your eye. So the first thing I say is you need balance. The second thing about judging correctly is you need to be beamless. Now forgive me, I'm stretching the English language there a little bit. Beamless. We need to get the beam out of our eye. If we are going to fulfill the created purpose of having a moral capacity, of being able to excuse or accuse and offer this help to society, to our families, and even to ourselves in many cases, we have to get the gunk out of our eye. Now, I don't know what you call it. 
Um, you know when you wake up, maybe you got a little something in the corner of your eye. What, what do you guys call that? I, Christina and I, we had a conversation this week over which is the right word. Um, I've heard it called different things. Gunk is, is one of them. I don't think that's a scientific term, right? We have a couple medical professionals in our church. I seriously doubt that when you visit their office, they, they would call it gunk. Christina, she called it guck. Guck. Now that just sounds like American redneck to me. Guck. You got guck in your eye. That's what that sounds like. But I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just a Texan thing. We say gunk. Who knows? Uh, the word that I was most familiar with growing up was sleep. You have sleep in your eye. And as I researched this a little bit, Come to find out that's what most people refer to it as, sleep, to have sleep. Uh, now, the very, uh, forgive me, right, this is a bit childish maybe, but there's another term that we used. We would call it an eye booger. Uh, that's probably <laughs> not something that I should be teaching everybody. Sorry, parents, if your kids uh, get a hold of that one, but that's something that we called it. Uh, do you know what the proper word for that is, the proper term? It's actually called room. Room. I, I even had to check the pronunciation because it's not R-O-O-M. R-H-E-U-M. Room. And as I investigated this room, this gunk that you get in your eye, uh, what, what I found out, and again, I speak under correction, I'm not a medical professional, obviously. But what happens is, that it's a collection of tears, mucus of various sorts, blood cells, skin cells, and dust. Those things all affect our eyes. So some of this is uh, in, from an internal source. Some of it is an external source, gets into our eye. Now during the day, we blink and constantly keep our eyes clean, and that's why the gut usually doesn't appear unless you have some sort of an infection. But in the, in, in the night, when we're sleeping, our eyes don't blink as they do in the day, and therefore that room, that sleep, that gunk will accumulate. Now, I find it interesting right, that this is a problem that happens to, to us when we sleep. But do you remember what the Apostle Paul said on several occasions, but especially to the Thessalonians? Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 5, he said, Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary the devil. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. As Christians, we're not supposed to be sleepwalking through our spiritual lives. We're supposed to have our eyes open, our, our eyes clean, our eyes ready, watching, right? Jesus said, watch and pray. We should be aware of what's going on around us. That is, in society, we should know what the Bible says about it, but we should also know what's going on within us. We should know the plan that God has for us, this, this wonderful plan of conforming us to the image of God. And when we are asleep on our spiritual journey, that gunk accumulates. 
and we begin to view things with a nonchalant attitude. We look at it and say, ah, I, I, I don't really know what the Bible says, nor do I care. And when that happens, you become spiritually useless. You cannot look at what's going on and offer a profitable opinion and help your brother get that moat out of his eye. Why? Your eye has been collecting gunk. Now, after a long night's sleep, you know how it goes. We wake up and the first thing we do is we start rubbing our eyes so that we can see clearly. This might be a day for some of you listening to awake out of that spiritual slumber that you've been enjoying now for so long and rub your eyes, go and, go and, and splash that cool water of the Word of God on your face and get the eyes clean. If I can ask you to hold your place in Matthew 7, can I show you another verse in Revelation chapter 3, please? Revelation chapter 3. And I want to show you here that in the last days, what we refer to as the Laodicean church age or church period, which is a reference to the day and age in which we live right now, the believers in this church, they, they have some problems with their eyes. Look at Revelation 3 and verse number 17. Revelation 3, 17. Jesus is speaking here. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, stop and think for a moment about blindness. I realize that, and it's a very tragic, tragic uh, situation when somebody does not have the physical ability of sight, whether that's from birth or from an accident later on in life. Uh, usually, right, those kind of cases requires a miracle. God has to step in, and right, we see this in the life of Jesus. They say nobody can do this but God. It had never been seen before. So it has to be some uh, divine intervention for blindness to be fixed. But, but there is blindness that can be, I want to say, temporary, you get enough gunk in your eye. It can be something from inside, right? You can allow the lust of your heart, the lust of your flesh to consume you. Covetousness, all the, the greed, uh, anger, all of that stuff can build up and you don't deal with it. You don't examine your heart and it builds up and it's something from within. Or it might be from something from without, the dust, if you will, of the world. It collects in your eyes. And rather than deal with it, you sleep through it. You know, no big deal and just let it slide. And when that happens, you get so much gunk stuck in your eye that you've seen it before when people have a, a serious eye condition. Sometimes they get so much gunk buildup, they can't even open their eye. And in that sense, they're temporarily blinded by all the gunk. Now look at verse 18, and I believe you'll see why, I, why I've pointed this out. Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And watch the last part. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. I don't think we're dealing here with the type of blindness that requires a miraculous divine intervention that opens a, 
somebody's eyes blind from birth. We're dealing with people who have gunk buildup. And they need to apply this spiritual eye salve. They need to apply the washing of the water by the Word. They need to maybe put a little effort into it and rub that gunk out. They, they need to apply the spiritual medicine God has made available. Whether that is yielding to the Spirit, whether that is diving deeper into the Bible, whether that is listening heartily to a sermon and taking it on board. Whatever that medicine is that God is trying to apply to clean your eyes, to get the gunk out, this is something Jesus said, I counsel thee, buy of me. You, you need to go out of your way, even if it costs you something to get your eyes open. Get the beam out of your eye. Isn't it strange that when we see what other people are doing wrong, at the same time, we're unable to see what we're doing wrong. I, I've noticed that usually the problem I see in others, it exists in me as well, but for some reason I'm oblivious to it. And if I stop and think long enough, if I examine my own heart, I'll usually realize that the moat I'm seeing in somebody else's life is just a small speck of what's going on in my own heart. And I'm going to be able to help that person a lot more if I first get the beam out of my own eye. I am not going to be taken seriously by the person I'm trying to help if they see the beam in my own eye and I'm just going for the moat in theirs. We need to be beamless. We need to wake up from our spiritual slumber, get our eyes, get our testimony, get our life straightened out, get it lined up with the Bible as best we can. We need to be balanced. We need to be beamless, right? Now you understand, I'm not saying sinless. Beamless is you realize you have troubles and problems, but you're applying the medicine to try to get it cleaned up so that you can see other things clearly and help. And that brings me to my last point. If you're going to judge the way Jesus intended, balanced, beamless, and beneficial, as you offer criticism to someone else. As you approach them and say, my brother, my sister, please hear me when I say this. I believe what you're doing, what you're saying, what you believe. I believe it's wrong. You need to be trying to help that person. Way too many times when we offer criticism, it is done merely to make that, first, that, that person feel inferior to us. It's done with a sense of vain glory. If I can put you down, then I will appear greater in the eyes of everybody else. And obviously, if that's your intention, if that's your motive, then you're doing it completely wrong. Balanced, beamless, and beneficial. Verse 5, we've, we've seen it already, but let me point it out to you again. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, beamless, and then shalt thou see clearly why? You see, there's no full stop there. You want to get the beam out of your own eye. You need to get your own life cleaned up. You need to get rid of the dust, the inner, wherever the problem's coming from. Get that right so that you can help others to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. I, I remember years ago, man, it seems like forever ago now, when I was a younger man, I, I went for basketball tryouts at a university. 
Now, even though I'm short and white, um, I, I thought I stood a chance, right? Usually those two things work against you in the game of basketball. Uh, but I, I was a decent player, not good enough to make the team. Obviously, I didn't, but I tried. I was invited. I was happy that I got invited. But I remember it was like torture for me to have, there's a, a string of coaches, I don't know, six or seven coaches standing there watching all of us try out. And it's so difficult to perform properly when everybody is watching every little move looking for a reason not to like you. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever walked into a room, whether it's your living room, your bedroom, your office, your church? Have you ever walked into a room and it just feels like the other people in the room are waiting and watching for you to make the smallest, slightest mistake so that they can pounce on it, and it puts you on edge, doesn't it? It, is, it feels so awkward. It's, it feels so tense. And you are not convinced, right, as I was, those coaches were not concerned about my feelings. When they put the cut list up on the wall, there was nothing on the bottom of the cut list, right? Where, you know, they give you a list of all the people that didn't make the cut. When your name appears on that list, there's nothing at the bottom of the list, not when I was coming up, that ever said anything about, we're so sorry that we had to cut you. We hope that this doesn't have any horrible impact. Please feel free to come back, get more lessons. We'll help you improve. They just said, you're cut, you're gone, goodbye, go home. Now, I've coached for many years. I get it. You don't have time to baby each player. But, but guys, when you come to Christ, you, are, you become one of the members of Christ's body. You are a member of the universal church. Listen, you've made the team. You've made the team. You don't need to come into a local church or into, if you want to think about it as being in the body of Christ, you don't need to be on edge the whole time going, oh dear, everybody's watching everything I'm doing. I hope I don't mess up because they're going to hate me and kick me out. You're in. You're accepted in the beloved. Now here's the attitude we want to have. When I know I've made the team, and I've done this with my players, I've had to put my arm around them sometimes. For those of you that don't know, I've coached a, a couple different university teams and a, and a national team. I've put my arm around certain players and I could see that they were getting discouraged and they were worried maybe coach is going to put me on the bench and never put me in the game. I'd put my arm around them and say, listen, you're my man. And I know that you messed up. You had a bad day. I'm going to work with you. We're going to get better at this. That, that is the type of criticism that can build someone up. We can take their mistake and actually use it as a building block in their lives. And if that's how we approach society, if that's how we approach other, our fellow church members, imagine the good we can do if we're balanced, if we're beamless, and if we're trying to be a blessing, to be beneficial to others. Take your Bible. I want to show you one last verse before we're done. Come to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. You see, it's, it's not just about how you judge, but why. 
why. Why are you telling that person that they're wrong? Why are you sharing that with them? Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul said it so well here. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, thump him over the head with your Bible until he sees how bad he is. Is that how the verse goes? That's not how it goes. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Do you see that there's a balance involved in this? There's a balance. We can still acknowledge the fact that this brother has committed a fault. He's overtaken in a fault. There's just something going on in his life and he's struggling to get over it. He's struggling to get the victory. So we acknowledge the mistake. We're not afraid to say what you're doing is wrong. But those that are minding the things of the Spirit, those that, have, that are not just saved but yielded to the Holy Spirit, what are they seeking to do? They don't look at that fallen brother as an opportunity to elevate themselves. They look at that as an opportunity to help that brother get over the hump. They want to restore him in the spirit of meekness. They go to him gently, patiently, rather than, how dare you? Rather than getting offended that there's this person needing help, they rather approach it patiently, gently, meekly. And, and here's how they can do it at the end of verse 1, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Do you see that there's a balance? We can call it a fault. There's meekness. So there's the mercy, the gentleness. There's the balance. Then there's beamless, considering thyself. Let me first check my own heart, my own life. Let me see if, if I am the right person to, to attempt to minister to this person. It, if I reach out and I'm struggling with the same thing, I may not be able to help much. But I should also remember as I reach out to this brother, you know what, maybe I don't struggle with the same temptations he or she does, but I could. Right? I, I am also just a sinner saved by grace. I could potentially be overcome in a fault. And if I was the one in need of help, how would I want somebody to reach out to me? I would want them to come gently, meekly, patiently. So I want to approach that brother with the attitude of, hey, I have also had to receive help. I've had a few beams stuck in my own eye. Now may I please help you with yours. That With that attitude, you can be a great benefit to many, many people. I believe that this, this level of trust within the body of Christ, right? B between you and I, listen, if I can just speak to our church members, this is, you don't just walk in and, and automatically assume that, that you can say whatever you want to whomever you want, and it's going to be accepted in the right way. You need to earn that level of trust. You need to uh, be able to s show people. They, they need to know that you have their best interest in, my, in, in mind. But if any of you have ever undergone beam removal surgery, which, which isn't a real thing, but you understand what I mean. If you have been overtaken in a fault, and God got you out of it. He brought you out of the pit 
that you dug yourself. You dug the pit, you fell in the pit, you got stuck in the pit, God had to come get you out of the pit. You're pitiful. But God got you out of it. Now that you've had beam removal surgery, you know how painful that process can be. You know what this qualifies you to do? You can now reach out to that next person and because that beam has been taken out of your own eye, you can recognize the moat in your brother's eye. That's what Jesus said. Pull the beam out of yours, then you can see clearly to cast the moat out of his eye. What are we going to do? I fell into this deep pit, and now I want to prevent you from falling into this pit. I had a big problem, a beam. I'm going to try to pre prevent you from having a beam by getting the moat out. I need to do it with the right attitude. I need to approach it with, an, with, with, the, with the effort and the attempt of, of benefiting you. But listen, if you've overcome addiction, whether that's alcohol, drugs, porn, anything you can be addicted to, if you've suffered from a failed marriage, maybe you've had some bad, experiencing, uh, bad experiences with with parenting, whether that was your parents or maybe you've made mistakes as a parent. Maybe you've uh, gone through rebellious teenagers. Maybe you were one. Maybe you've suffered with depression. See, it doesn't even have to be necessarily a sinful thing, but maybe you've just gone through something that was beam-worthy, and now you can see the beginning stages of that problem in somebody else's life. And before it gets real bad, before that moat turns into a beam, you can reach out to them and Galatians 6 verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what you say to that person? Listen, I, I love you and I care about you. And I, the, what I want to say to you comes from really a good place in my heart because I, I don't want to see you go down the same path that I went down. I'm going to walk the path with you. Let me help you overcome this. I can see where you might be heading in the wrong direction. I will walk it with you. I will help you overcome that. That is what Christ did for us. Listen, when, when we talk about this, we talk about judgment and condemning. Jesus came and He clearly said, if you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. He said, if you believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus said to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? I mean, he, he was very blunt. He told them the truth. But at the same time, that same crowd that Jesus rebuked when He got to the cross, He said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Balance. Jesus was, of course, beamless. And He was trying to be a blessing. He was trying to be beneficial to the people and help them. When I say to you today in closing, friend, you are a sinner. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be over, overly critical. I'm not trying to compare you to me. If we were comparing you and me, there's a good chance that you're a better man than I. But... It's, it's just a fact. It's true that at some point in your life you've fallen short. You've sinned against God. And because of that, your eternity, it, you're heading in the wrong direction. 
If you have sinned and broken God's law, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's no way around it. And in the Bible, there's two deaths. You're not only going to physically die, but the Bible says death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That is an eternal death. Not only are you separated from God, but suffering in the lake of fire. You say, now, Brother Mike, you're just trying to scare us. You're just being mean. Not at all. I'm saying this because I myself was on that path. I was on the, the broad path that leads to destruction. And what I'm saying is there's a way off of that path. Jesus Christ came and He took all of those sins. He went to the cross. And instead of you receiving the punishment and the condemnation, that punishment, that curse for your sins was placed on Jesus. And the Bible says He became a curse for us. He took that for us. Now, if you will today humble yourself before God and say, God, I'll take the criticism. I, I admit it. I've fallen short. I've sinned. And yes, there might be hypocrites in the church and there might be uh, problems here and there and, and beams in other people's eyes, but I have my own issues. And God, I'm wrong and I'm not worthy to enter into your presence. I've never been saved, but today I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. You understand what I'm offering you today? I'm not trying to be judgmental when I say you're a sinner on your way to hell. I'm trying to make you aware of a very important situation, but I'm also trying to help. I will walk the path with you, the path that leads straight to Calvary, and I'll show you Jesus dying in your place. And if you will accept Him as your Savior, open your heart today and say, Please, Lord, come in. Save me. Dwell in my heart. Friend, today, today you can pass from death to life. Not only is the beam out of the eye, but you can get it out of your heart in that, in that instance. I hope today, I hope today that we can get the gunk out of our eyes so that we can be a, a blessing and a help to others. If you would, bow your heads and let's, let's talk to the Lord about this. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to examine... Uh, Lord, our eyes to take a look at how we can help those around us. God, whether we like it or not, judging is just a part of life. Help us to do it right. Help us to do it for the right reasons. And Father, I pray especially if anybody's listening today and they've never been saved, God, might they take a long look at their heart, be honest with themselves this, uh, this morning. And if they need to today, call upon Your name and ask You to forgive them. And Lord, we know that You stand ready to bring that lost sinner home, to clean them up, wash away all their sins. Please, God, if somebody's lost, might You save them today. Thank You for Your help this morning, and I pray You bring us back tonight. We want to learn more. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.